1: Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. George Santayana's celebrated phrase informs conventional thinking around remembrance. Commemoration is seen as a moral duty. But why so? asks David Reif, author, critic and former war correspondent, who has seen how active forgetting helps to heal communities and resolve conflict. Reef's latest book, In Praise of Forgetting, explores this subject in the context of commemorations of the Holocaust, the great wars of the last century, and also the Easter Rising here. Reef is the son of the famous American essayist, Susan Sontag, so you could say contrarianism is in his blood. I started by asking him why he took issue with Santayana's view.
0: Well, I'm interrogating it. Let's put it that way. I'm trying to figure out why so many smart people think this is true. That is that, in Santiana's phrase, that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And that is the kind of conventional wisdom of the age. There's no doubt about that. It's a a good person, a well-intended person is supposed to think that. I, I, I do think Santana's phrase is probably the stupidest thing ever uttered by a very, very intelligent person which he was. You know I don't think it's always good to forget mm-hmm. I just think forgetting should be a political option. What happens when communities have different memories collective memories. I mean again to, just to double back for a second just so your listeners are clear about this. We don't remember anything. Uh in that sense i mean a policeman will tell you that after 6 weeks a witness's testimony becomes almost valueless so when we're we're talking about remembering we're talking about the collective myths of peoples which can be either in support of state power can be a glorification of the state it can be a glorification of the victims of the state i mean increasingly you know we have memorialization by People consider themselves either themselves oppressed or the descendants of oppressed. But my question again to, is, who's going to adjudicate this? I mean, let, leaving even leaving active forgetting aside, let's say we you take a, a, a more ironic view of uh, remembrance than I'm. A collective memory—you don't think it's as foolish, and you don't care about the fact that in three thousand years it'll be forgotten because that's we're not going to be alive for that, and so who cares. You still have to say, on what basis do you judge the moral quality of remember? I mean, I think we're very, we, and certainly we in the West, but maybe everywhere, are much too influenced by the fact that both of the great world wars of the 20th century ended in complete victory by one side. And Generally viewed to be the the better of the two sides in the First World War and and the and the good side in the Second yeah. World War, let's say, uh, broadly speaking, and unconditional surrender obviously permits the victor to impose its collective its its view of what the collective memory of the event should be on everybody else. But what happens? Most wars have not ended that way. Most wars have either ended historically, I mean, from the Bible forward, the Amalekites and all that, uh, with slaughter and just dispersion, you know, sowing salt into the, you know, into the fields of Carthage, et cetera, et cetera. Either slaughter or a deal. And if there's a deal and many more wars end with a deal than, than end with unconditional surrender or complete massacre, then who's to say whose memories are going to triumph? And, and how you're going to make how you're going to morally legitimize one version over another. Is it fair
1: to say you probably come down on the side of not being extreme in terms of holding on to memory in the sense that I think you, you speak about the, the, the need in often these situations of a, of a soothing piece, a bridging piece to get through uh, a, a period of trauma. So by being extreme and to introduce the other philosopher, I think you mentioned Kant's sort of notion of a, a principled holding on to the, the value of memory. Mm-hmm. It's probably the wrong way to go because it, it, it
0: impedes this kind of opportunity for a new beginning. Well, John Gray, the philosopher John Gray, the English philosopher John Gray always says that, you know, he and I form an anti-utopian party of exactly two people. Uh, you know, and so, I mean, if I have any politics anymore, I'm an anti-Kantian. I mean, Kant said you couldn't lie even to save a life which seems to me not just inhuman, but a human, perhaps more interesting. I mean, he's a very brilliant man kind But no, I mean, of course I don't accept that. And again, with the caveat, and it's important, that there will be times when memory will be transformative and maybe even necessary. But first of all, it's time-bound. There, in, if you believe, as I do, that there, that, that you know, to use the sort of philosophy 101 phrase, values are incommensurable. That is that not all good things go together, to put it in normal language. Then you're constantly faced with making rather poor choices. That's what I, let me put it this way, what what seems to me so incredibly willfully wishful thinking about the human rights movement that they insist against, it seems to me, pretty much all the evidence that... That all good things should go together. My experience in war zones is that to get peace, you often have to accept injustice, and I and then you make your choice. Do you prefer, do, you know, in the in the particular instance? I don't mean you have to make some broad moral principle out of it, but do you? Is it more important to you that the guns stop or that the the abusers be punished? But. I, I think there are times when you you just got to forget it. That was what the Balkans taught me. It's what looking at the Middle East, the Arab-Palestinian... Conflict teaches me. I use a lot of those examples in the book.
1: Coming back to 1916 and the, and the commemorations at the moment, there was a line you had in the book about poetry facilitating long memory and, and prose shortening it. I, I don't know whether maybe a bit of a generalisation about the Irish character. There's maybe a greater tradition of poetry here, but do, do you think that's some of our our cultural tradition has given us longer memories, or, or what? Or what do you make of the? This may be orgy of memory at the moment. It's going on for a decade. This this year being kind of only a part of it. Well, there's a lot
0: to say about the commemorations of 1916 in this country. The first is obvious thing, and that is this is the easy one. What are they going to do about 1921? I mean, 1921 people in this country really don't agree, even all these years later. How are you going to how are you going to commemorate? I think you are hoping maybe
1: we'll commemorate it out of that stage. We'll have done all our commemoration. Twenty-one will pass kind of quietly. Yeah. Well, probably, it's probably
0: a sensible hope. <laughs> I mean, that that would come back to Edna Longley's crack that Ireland should erect a monument to amnesia and then forget where they put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the commemoration of, I mean, a national Independence Day, which on some level is what this is. Uh, I mean, everybody, the Americans have the 4th of July or, you know, the 14th of July in France, the storming of the Bastille. I mean, again, the storming of Bastille didn't solidify the revolution. And of course, 1916 didn't, you know, it wasn't the final act. It was the opening act of this Irish revolution, the latest of many. But I don't, I don't have any great objection to it, but I do think that, I mean, it interests me the history of commemoration here. For example, the fact that, when Northern Ireland was in flames. uh, The governments of the day were extremely uncomfortable with commemoration. In a sense, you can have this orgy of commemoration, pretty gentle orgy as orgies go, because you've drawn a line under a lot of that. And it's safe to have a commemoration. And also there's a history of commemoration. Commemoration has itself a history, because remembrance isn't about the past, it's about the present. And the great English novelist L. P. Hartley starts his best book, *The Go-Between*, with the sentence: "The past is another country. They do things differently there." History is critical history, commemorate, and it's about the past, this other country called the past. I mean, when my friend Cormac O'Grada at at uh, at UCD writes a piece about you know the rural economy in an Irish county in seventeen in the eighteenth century. He doesn't think that those farmers thought the way, you know, farmers in those same places with their EU subsidies and, and a different system and everything else, different sense of religious belonging, you name it, do. I mean, the past isn't, for, for a critical historian, it's not about comforting the present. On the contrary, if anything, it's about emphasizing the strangeness of the past, it seems to me. Whereas commemoration is about using the past for the purposes of the present,
1: I think one of the chapters in your book is is around uh, pose the question: Do do you have to deform history to to preserve it, or do you have to actually create? I'm not sure if this is the point you're getting at a kind of a, a, a palatable view of the past that we can all rally around now. And there is this tendency, maybe, to to revise history and create a new. Um, accepted version that kind of has all that, all the modern uh, elements in it. You know, even if they might have been there at the time.
0: Oh, but that, uh, that's exactly what I, I mean. I, I think that that's what I was trying to say, perhaps maladroitly, uh, about you know the contrast between critical history, which emphasizes, if you will, the strangeness of the past, or the or If you just prefer to a less loaded word, the autonomy of the past, the difference of the past. And collective memory, which is constantly being improved, rarified. I mean, you know, look, here I, I walk through the streets of Dublin, a city I think is it's a wonderful city, a city I love, and I'm, I come here every year. And, I'm, and I say to myself, here's this modern European country where 25 out of 26 counties voted for gay marriage. I mean, Patrick Peirce, you know, would have, it would have been inconceivable to him it's not just that he would have hated it, of course he would have hated it, he was a man of his time, but the difference between the reality of these people, insofar as we understand them in critical history, and the way they're being used is just enormous. So I do think the past keeps being rewritten in in terms of commemoration. Take my own country, I mean, we're all, because we're, the United States is now a genuinely multiracial country, I think a lot of efforts are being made to so sort of rewrite the conventional wisdom, to make it more inclusive than it was historically. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think we should be clear: it's not the his- its not history.
1: Could I ask one very last question? I, more on a personal note: your your mum was a, a famous uh, public figure. Do you ever feel a personal duty to um, keep her memory alive or preserve her memory from? misrepresentation or or other kind of misuse of, of of the memory of her work
0: no actually I don't I feel a tremendous obligation and it takes up a good deal of my one and only life to protect her work that is to say to make sure the posthumous work that she left behind is published and I'm editing that as a kind of cure if you like curator in this sort of art museum sense of her work I feel a, a total obligation which will be with me I'm sure to the end of my days as far as what people say about her for however absolutely not I don't oppose anybody uh, the, most things people write there's a film about her which I despise uh, that was made recently uh, uh, I really I wouldn't cooperate with it but I didn't write a letter to all my friends saying don't cooperate because partly because you can't control these things. I also feel that for a writer, and I think it's true for a painter or uh, or the other arts, that, uh, you know, once the work is in the world, you don't really own it anymore. So I'm concerned that my mother's work is in print in all the languages. But as far as what people are going to say about her, as far as how history literary history or even the history of public intellectuals because my mother was both. No, I I I don't think there's anything I could or should do.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.